0: Acts chapter 19, verse 18, that's where we're going to pick up tonight. Uh, just to kind of briefly go over last week, we are in, Paul, Paul and his ministry team is in Ephesus. Now last week I forgot to give the map to the guys in the back, so tonight we have that for you, the third missionary journey map. Let's look at that together. Um, find it here for me. There we go. So, this is the third missionary journey. Now, I know some of you, if you're sitting way in the back, you may have a little trouble seeing all of it. That's okay. I just want you to get the general idea of, of, of where he's going and what he's doing here. So, all the way to the right, you'll see the kind of tan area that's Syria, and right at the top is Antioch, and that's the church that Paul starts. That That's Paul's home church. So, this is the third missionary journey. If you've been coming the whole time, you've you've been with us through all the missionary journeys. But he's on the third one. And in the first two, he has planted churches all across Galatia, that big green area. And then it, mainly in Macedonia, which is that orange area all the way to the left at the top there. A little bit below there in Athens and uh, Achaia, which is Corinth and Greece. And then... <clears throat> After On the second missionary journey, after he was in Corinth, which was, again, the left where it says Achaia, that green kind of province there, he sailed all the way across the Mediterranean back to Antioch, and that completed his second missionary journey. So for the third one, really all he's doing is revisiting all these churches that have already been planted. He's not really establishing a lot of new churches except for the church of Ephesus. So of course when you read in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, we're now reading I would say like the companion portion of scripture in the book of Acts about how that church was planted. So if you read the letter to the Ephesians, you might you're, you only have part of the picture. Okay, if you read the book of Ephesians, you have part of the picture. The whole story, though, is told in the book of Acts of who those people were, how their church got started in the first place, what did it, what did it look like, who were the key players, what, what are the, you know, the main people that got saved, and how long was Paul there, and all of that. So in the first part of the missionary journey, he starts, he goes through Galatia, he visits all those churches he planted, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, all of those. Then he heads to... Ephesus. Now you probably can't see Ephesus on the map, but if you follow the red, the red line there, you'll see kind of where it ends up in Asia, uh, towards the bottom left, right there. I wish we could zoom in for you, boy. Maybe I need one of those little red laser pointers. You know, that would feel special if I had one of those. But Ephesus is right there at the bottom. Now, what ends up happening is he ends up spending three years there, and this was sort of unusual. He didn't really spend that much time in one place. One, I think his first missionary journey was only two years, if I'm remembering right. So the whole journey was only... But he, spends, he ends up spending three years there. And the reason is because he doesn't really have an agenda. He's not, he doesn't know how long he's going to be anywhere. It's just if there's fruit and if there's continued fruit, I'm going to stay here and keep working as long as there's fruit. And you're going to see when he leaves, you could, that season's kind of up. That grace is up. And that's kind of what we're going to get to tonight all right so when you read the letter to ephesians it's going to make a lot more sense when once we understand what's been going on here in the in the book of acts okay so thinking about the letter to the ephesians well remember paul was there for 3 years the longest he ever he was he was anywhere so he's going to have more you could say if he's human like we are he's going to have more relationships he's going to have more connection there He's going to have more, maybe even concern, you know, how we tell our kids, well, you know, we we love you all the same. You know, we don't love anybody more than the others, you know, it's just we love you different. That's true, but I'm not sure if it's true in churches, you know, in cities, if you go somewhere and you spend some time there and you get to know those people and you know the faces and they treated you well, you just have very fond feelings towards that area And again, he was in Ephesus for three years. That's significant. You know, He got to know these people really well. There were a lot of converts. There was a lot of fruit. The church sort of exploded there. I think one of the reasons why he had more fruit there than he did uh, some other places is because you remember at the end of the second missionary journey, he left Priscilla and Aquila there. And they were there for almost a year doing some groundwork before he ever came back And uh, to Ephesus on this third missionary journey. So I think they did a lot of the groundwork and just, you know, the, the hearts of the people of Ephesus was ready. Also, you'll remember from last week that he was teaching in the synagogue initially. And that didn't really pan out too well. So then he started teaching in what they called the Hall of Tyrannus. Which would be just like a secular meeting hall that was probably being rented out. And so he started teaching daily in there, and and then he taught there for a couple years. And being there every day, teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, just expounding on his revelation that God had given him, I think that's connected to why, when you read the book of Ephesians, you get more revelation than you do in any other epistle in the New Testament. I mean, all the epistles are good, they're all full of revelation, but sometimes... Some of the epistles can almost be sort of from more of a natural standpoint. Like, hey, you know, uh, greet so-and-so. Hey, y'all stop doing this. You know, stop living this way. Start start doing this. You know, why are y'all arguing about this? You know, it's very natural. But Ephesians isn't really like that. Ephesians is some of the greatest revelation that we have about the cross. It's some of the greatest revelation about what was happening behind the cross. In other words, what you couldn't see with your eyes. So the disciples and the gospels, they saw with their physical eyes what happened on the cross, right? They saw the body of Jesus, the blood, the crown of thorns, the nails, and that's the story they tell in the gospels. But there's really not a lot of revelation about the significance of what was happening on the cross. You don't get that until you get to the New Testament And you start reading Paul's writings. And Paul begins to explain it was way more significant than his body being on the cross. There were things that were happening in the supernatural. There were prices that were being paid. There there was literally ransoms that were being paid and purchased by the blood of Jesus. Things that we owed. Debts that we owed. You can't see this, right? This is in the supernatural debts that mankind owed according to the law of God, according to the another world, another realm that we don't know anything about. We owed debts. We had become children of Satan. We were part of the family of Satan. We were on our way to hell. All of these things that you couldn't see in the natural. Paul begins to explain what happened on the cross, all that was resolved. All that was resolved and mankind was redeemed. We were adopted. We were forgiven. We were justified. All these words that he uses, you know, these big gospel words justification, redemption, you know, propitiation, which means for the sins to be atonement, all of these things. Paul explains all of this, most of it, in the book of Ephesians. And I have to think that the reason why we get it in Ephesians is because it's what he was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. When he was there for three years, And he's expounding every day. It wasn't just a few months and he was off. You know, you can imagine some of these places where he was only there a few weeks or a few months. You know, he gives the basics of the gospel and there's a few, and before you know it, he's gone and maybe he leaves Timothy behind, Silas behind, some of these guys to kind of help further disciple these guys. But in Ephesus, he was there for three years and he's teaching every day. And so he got past some of the elementary basics of the gospel and he began to get into these revelations that Jesus Christ had shown him personally. You remember Paul said, I didn't get my revelation from man. He said, God, Jesus showed it to me personally. And that's what he was, I believe that's what he was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, which is why when he writes Ephesians to them a few years later, he's going back through that revelation. He's going back through that teaching saying, remember when I was with you, this is what I taught you. This is what I showed you. I don't think he would have laid all of that out because it was like putting out a, prime rib, steak, you know, and where some of the other epistles might just be like a little bit of milk, a little bit of bread, you know, simple, just, and he even tells them that sometimes, I couldn't give you the meat, he said, you were just infants, I had to give you just a little bit, little crumbs at a time, because you weren't ready for this. Well, there's no, with his mindset and understanding of that, there's no way he would have written what he wrote in Ephesians if they weren't ready for that, does that make sense? Like, he was with them for three years, so he knew what they were ready for. So when, he, so when you read the book of Ephesians, what you're reading is, you're reading some of the deepest parts of the revelation that Paul had about the cross, and I believe is things that he'd been teaching them for three years. So the first three chapters of Ephesians, that's all it is. It's revelation, massive revelation about the cross. And if you're a new believer, you know, and you've read Ephesians, you might not think nothing about it. You might, you know, I don't understand all this. Look, just realize you're reading what the whole much of what the whole Christian faith is based on that that whole revelation so that's the first 3 chapters of Ephesians the second half of Ephesians the last 3 chapters mostly deal with practical instruction morality you know uh, don't get into sin treat each other this way you know how the church should function and that looks a lot more, that looks a lot uh more like the other letters that we see in the epistles almost the second half of Ephesians is More similar to some of the other epistles we see, which is a lot of practical instructions. Hey, don't treat each other this way. Try to live this way. Stop doing this, you know. Uh, Stop sinning. Repent. You know, pray. All of those basic instructions. And so that's what we get in the letter of Ephesians. So, when we go to Acts 19 tonight, but we're reading the backstory of how the Ephesian church was planted, all right? And so, last week was sort of part one of that, and... Tonight we, we continue that story. So Acts 19, 18, this is where we left off. We actually read this verse last week. It says, Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So this is after Paul's been lecturing in the hall of Tyrannus. And then now you've got all of this witchcraft and, and false religion and things like that that they've been practicing. They're repenting. They're burning their, their books. You know, they're, they're leaving their old way of life and they're following Christ. Verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Let's put up the map again of the third missionary journey. So, after the book burnings that we read about, it says that Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia. You see that all the way to the left in the orange. So what's he doing? Well, he's going to go visit the other churches that were planted. He's going to go visit Philippi. He's going to go visit Thessalonica. He's going to go visit Berea. He's going to go down to Achaia and visit Athens. He's going to go visit Corinth. This is his plan, right? And then it says, notice what it says. He was going to go to Macedonia and Achaia and then go to Jerusalem. All right, so if we look back at the map, Jerusalem is all the way back where he started, all the way back in Syria. So he was going to go back through he was going to visit Macedonia, Achaia, all of that. And then he was going to pass, probably through the Mediterranean Sea, he was going to pass back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's all the way at the very bottom on the right-hand side below Syria. But that's not what happens. Um, and, and it says his intention was to do that, visit those churches, and then look at uh, verse 21. It says, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he's got in his heart that he wants to go to Rome. Now, I've got another map I want to show you. Uh, this is the map um, of Rome that I, I told you about, Shane. And this one, all the way to the right, you see Italy in the purple. Well, that's where, that's where Rome is. Everything we've looked up at to this point has all been in this right side of the map, all of that area over there. And you can see Rome is all the way over there, to the left. So what he was going to do was he was going to hit Macedonia, Achaia, and then he was going to go all the way back to Jerusalem, and then at some point he was going to sail from Jerusalem all the way across the Mediterranean to Rome over there in the purple. Now I'm just telling you that that tells us what his plan was, but that's not what it, that's not what happened. Not at least not immediately. All right. So going back to uh, verse 21, I'm going to read it one more time. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, now Paul does go to Rome. God told him he was going to go to Rome. God actually, we read this in the book of Acts, that God spoke to Paul and told him he was going to stand before Caesar and actually give a testimony of the gospel to Caesar. This is never recorded in the book of Acts. You know, the book of Acts ends and the story's not finished. You know, when you get to the end of Acts, they're, they're still in process. Paul is being arrested. He's appealed to Caesar. He's on his way to Caesar. But he doesn't actually see Caesar in, uh, in the book of Acts. The book of Acts doesn't finish that story. Now, we know from history that he did stand before Caesar. And we know how he died and all of that. Okay, so he, he, it was already in his heart way back here that he had to go to Rome. The Lord had already been talking to him about this. Verse 22 and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers Timothy and Erastus he himself stayed in Asia for a while so he so this is interesting because he was in Ephesus he wanted to go back and see the other churches instead what he decides to do is send Timothy and Erastus and he they begin to visit these other churches in Macedonia you know like i said Philippi Thessalonica these other ones and he himself, he himself stays in Asia or in, in Ephesus. Ephesus was in Asia. He stays there and continues to minister. Now, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's another thing Christianity is called sometimes in the book of Acts is the way. No little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the work, workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth? Now, this is a closed-door meeting, okay? This is between Demetrius, who was the silver myth, silversmith, and some of other business guys that sold these little artifacts to the whole community. He, Ephesus was the world center for the worship of the goddess Artemis. And you're going to see more about that as we read on. That that's obvious from this, but you can look at it in history too. It's well known that that was the fact. So they're they're making a lot of money off of selling these little shrines, these little, you know, silver shrines that they're making and these things that are hand, these metal workings that they're doing handcrafted. They they have a large business doing this. So this is a closed door meeting where they explain their true heart of why they're so upset, okay? They don't care about Artemis. They don't care about the god, the goddess Artemis. That's not why they're upset. They're upset because their business model is being affected, and we see that in this closed-door meeting. Now, in a minute, they're going to have more of a public forum about it, and they don't mention anything about their business. <laughs> they don't mention anything about their wealth. They don't bring that point up. At that point, it's all about the great goddess artemis and how beautiful she is and wonderful she is and etc but we get her real motive their their real motive right here so demetrius silversmith who made silver shrines for artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said men you know that from this business we have our wealth and you see in here that not only in ephesus but in almost all of asia this paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, he was right. (laughs) That, That was the truth. But they didn't care about that. Verse 27, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worships. So, we know that from this, very clearly, they were most upset because their business was being affected. Now, you remember when we read last week, from Paul preaching for three years in Ephesus, it, the Bible says that it was spreading to all of Asia. The whole uh, province of Asia, which was one of the biggest provinces in the Roman Empire, was being reached. And they all worshiped the goddess Artemis, and they were all abandoning Artemis, and so they don't care about these little trinkets and these little statues anymore. So across the whole province, now their business is being affected, and they're upset about it. So Artemis' worship was a big deal in Ephesus and all of Asia, but Ephesus was the center of it. Now, I have a picture I want to show you of the, the temple of Artemis, because it was actually one of the seven wonders of the world, and uh, let's see if we'll get it up in a minute, but this is just a, a drawing. This is just a rendering. Um, it's because the remnants of it are actually still there. What's cool about the city of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, is a lot of the remnants of these things that the scriptures talk about are still there. I mean, you, you can go stand in some of these places um, that are mentioned in these passages we're reading right now. And this, was, this is one. The The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was, it was beautiful, and people would come from all over to worship. Any, anybody that was worshiping Artemis would come there. And this is where Paul's doing his ministry for three years. If you go to Ephesus today, there are still like cornerstones and some of the columns that are still there. It's you know, basically rubble now, but uh, you, could still, you could still see it. So verse 28, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Now I have another picture of the theater that I want to show you because this is one of the most intact uh, things that's still there. This theater in Ephesus is still there. And this this is the theater where they where they went to. Now, if you look at the very bottom on the sidewalk, those are people down there. You can see how tiny those people are. This was a big theater. So you can just leave that up while I read this, so you kind of can envision this. But the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius Aristarchus uh, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. They didn't want him to die, right? They, you know, they didn't want... They'd already taken some of the companions. The, this place is getting... You know, it's basically like a riot. I mean, the city is in confusion. Some of them don't even know why they're there. You know, that happens today still, right? Crowd starts to gather. People are shouting. And then half the people end up, don't even know why they're there. And they're all getting worked up and, and shouting and yelling and, and rioting. And it's like, why are you here? I don't know. <laughs> Everybody else was here. You know, they seemed upset. We should be upset. And so that just starts, It just like a snowball just starts happening. So they're urging Paul, hey, don't go in. They don't really, they haven't connected this whole thing with you just yet. You know, They and so they they drug in some of his companions, but Paul's not actually in the theater. <clears throat> now, verse 32 Some cried out one thing, and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But then when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours... They cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. (laughs) Now this is amazing to me because when we come to church, we come to church for about an hour and a half. And I'm not sure we have this level of excitement. And they're there worshiping this false god. And they've got this theater packed out. And they're, they're shouting over and over for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they can't quiet him. People are The guy keeps trying to yell over and say, Hey, quiet down. Let, let's explain what's going on. Let's talk about this. No, they're shouting him down. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. Over a false god that doesn't exist that some person made with their, with their hands. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Because, I mean, I see that today you know you just turn on your turn on your TV on a sunday after church and look at the football games man people face it not against football love love it love it all but it's worship it is it's a form of worship and you and you see people there faces painted wearing you know viking horns and all you know cheese on their head and whatever you know and they're just so into it and they love it and they're pouring out their passion and they're shouting and they're chanting and there's you know what It's no different man-made gods, group of people on the field throwing a pigskin around. Again, I watch football. I love football. Nothing wrong with it. But it is sad when that is worshipped more than the true God and creator of the universe. And it is sad, too, to me. And I don't know how this has creeped into our culture or why it's creeped into our culture, that the same people that would go to a football game and shout their brains out. Some of them take their shirt off and paint stuff on their chest and like, and you just think most dignified person ever, they'd come in church and they'd stand like this. And they'd never think for a moment to shout for God. When when actually what God has done for us and and what we're talking about, what we're worshiping about and What we're teaching about far surpasses anything happening on that football field. Far surpasses any concert that we go to where people are just screaming their brains out. I mean, you know, there was that concert in Houston where people were literally trampled to death at the front, trying to get to the stage for what? And I'm saying we come in church. And look, I'm not trying to like, I'm not talking about this church specifically. I'm just talking about church in general where people seem to be so reserve, like can't show any passion, can't show any emotion, must remain very, you know, it's like, man, it's not going to be like that in heaven. I just want to let y'all know that. It is not going to be like that in heaven. When we get to heaven, there's not going to, no one's going to see Jesus for the first time and be like this. Hi, how are you? You, some of Some of us that have been in church our whole life, like stoic, You're going to be crying like a baby, snotting on the floor. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to come up and poke him and say, I told you so. (laughs) I'm I'm going to come up and say it. But I'm not even saying, I'm not even trying to, like, get us to worship. I'm not not trying to. I'm just saying this, it's really not right, and it's, it's weird, though. Isn't it weird, though? It's weird. It's weird to watch the way people will pour their passion in their, I call it worship. I mean... They'll pour their worship into something. But man, when it comes to God and it comes to church, I don't know how this creeped in the culture where we don't have that in church. But, but really, when the people of God gather in the house of God, it should be the biggest celebration. Like, we should be... I'm not Again, I'm not really trying to transform our church from one sermon or anything like that. I'm just saying, when we come in, it should be like people just celebrating about what God has done, especially when we start singing about it. Like, we start going... Man, what he did on the cross and what he means and what he's fought for me and the blood and this. There, there ought to be something in us that's just like, oh, my, you know, thank you, God, from the bottom of our, our soul and passion. And, again, if we could do that because it's fourth down and, and one and our team is going for it and we're like, yeah, everybody's screaming, everyone's chanting and stomping. You ever been in one of those stadiums? They're doing that and the whole thing's like shaking. You come in church, I mean, you could just about hear a pin drop sometimes. That's not right, but I don't know if I'll see it change in my lifetime or not. I guess we had to get Sullivan on the stage, let him be like a cheerleader for us. You know, that's, I don't know, that's the only thing that might do it. But anyway, <laughs> so they're shouting out, great is Artemis, put a lot of the worship in churches to shame. They're, they're shouting, shouting from the top of their lungs, great is Artemis for two hours, I think a lot of American churches, I think we'd have been like, at at hour one, we'd have been like, okay, (laughs) time for lunch, you know, not going to do this for another hour. But they were there for two hours shouting for Artemis. Verse 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, this from uh, historians, they, they believe this was like a meteorite that was actually in this temple that I showed you earlier that had, had fallen and they had equated it with Artemis. Uh, verse 36, seeing then that <clears throat> these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men... Here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are pro let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So remember that all these provinces that you saw on the map, these are all Roman provinces. And we're at the point in the Roman Empire where Rome would try to leave power to the the people that they had conquered or they would set up their own pro-councils and, and governors and things like that. But by and large, the, the cultures in that area were not necessarily Romanized. That wasn't necessarily the goal for them to be Roman. So in this example, Ephesus was Greek. They're very, very Greek. And what we have here, this, this town clerk, though, is accountable to Rome. And, and the other officials are, are accountable to Rome. So what he's telling them is hey, if we don't handle this, we're, we're going to be in trouble with Rome. And you see this actually throughout the whole Bible because they all were living in this culture. The, the Pharisees were concerned about this. Pilate was concerned about this when he was crucified. This, this idea comes up a lot in Scripture of, hey, we're, we're being left to manage and rule this, and if we don't get a handle on this, Rome is going to get involved, and that's going to be very bad for me. You see that idea in Scripture a lot, and that's the same thing going on here. He, you know, the town clerk is saying, hey, we need to settle this, we need to deal with this, because if Rome has to come down and handle this, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. And so they all dismiss. Now, I want to make a few points about this story that we've read tonight. Uh, Number one, fruitfulness in ministry sometimes comes in seasons and And in waves, okay. Um, For example, even in Paul's ministry, he did not have the same fruit everywhere that he went. You know, and and we're talking about this now because we're gonna we're gonna bring it home a little bit, and we're gonna apply it to our lives and to our time and our situation. Paul had massive fruit in Ephesus, probably some of the, the greatest fruit that he had in any of the cities that he went to. And it lasted beyond him because he wrote the letter to Ephesians and we still are, you know, receiving from that fruit today. But fruitfulness in ministry sometimes comes in waves and in seasons and you don't always have the same fruit that you had just because last week or last year you had this or with this person you had great success and then you might do the exact same thing with another person and have no success. It That's how ministry is. Paul seemed to understand this very well. Even Jesus told his disciples when they were going to you know spread the gospel, he said if you come to a city And they reject it, and they don't want anything to do it. He said, wipe the dust from your feet and move on to the next city, knowing that you're not going to have fruit everywhere or with every person or in every season or in every city the same. And and I've learned this in ministry that sometimes fruitfulness in ministry comes in season and waves. But um, what I've endeavored to do and what I think Christians ought to do is to be constant. So, the, the fruit may be sky high in one season, and in another season, it may seem like, man, we're doing the same strategy, the same work, and we have a tenth of the fruit that we were having. Yeah, but you stay constant. You stay constant. See, God taught me this real early in the ministry because when, when I first got into the ministry, um, I was 15 years old, and the pastor of the church we were going to asked me to start ministering in the youth. And I was only 15. I mean, I, I just was not ready, you know, for that. But I lo- he knew how much I loved the Lord and I loved the Word and I was going to do whatever. But, you know, I, I, I was very, very young in the ministry. And so one of the first things they asked me to do was preach to the youth Sunday school class. That's when back when we used to have Sunday school on Sundays. I don't know if some churches still do that but we would have Sunday school at 9.30, and all these different Sunday school classes, and one of them was the youth Sunday school class, and they asked me to start teaching that class. Now, the very first, and at that point, they hadn't had a Sunday school class for the youth, I don't think, so they got everybody excited, you know, and and all the youth showed up. I don't know, it's probably 20 youth, you know, that showed up, and I was nervous. Oh, my gosh, I was so nervous. I had, like, 10 pages of notes, single-spaced, typed, and I'm pretty sure... Like, I was supposed to teach for one hour, and I remember thinking to myself that I want to over-prepare so that if I run out, you know, I'll have extra. Well, I went through the stuff and all the extra, and I was done in 15 minutes, yeah. and I had nothing else to say, and I was, it was totally empty uh, after that, the last 45 minutes. So, I don't know, eventually it dwindled down to about three people. And I remember the Lord teaching me this in this season, of you preach like there's a hundred. I don't care if there's two. I don't care if three. I don't care if you show up. And by the way, my now wife of twenty years next year was in that Sunday school class. Just so you know, she was very faithful. But there were times where, no kidding, it was me, her, and her sister Jamie who, by the way, is on st- you know, with Brandon in the church. But there were times where it was me and the two of them. And I remember the Lord teaching me in this season, if you don't prepare and you don't pray and you don't study, just like there's going to be 100 people there, you're not worthy of this, of this post. And I took it so serious. And I, and I got to the point where I could care less if there was two or if there was 20 it made me no difference because I was, I was doing it in service to the Lord, and I was doing it for Him, and it didn't matter how many people were there, and it's that way now. You know, if, if, it's, on, if it's on Sunday and the place is full, or it's on Wednesdays and we're not as full, or we've got a group meeting of five or ten, it doesn't matter. There's a, there's a certain attitude and heart that goes into it regardless of how many people are there because you're not really doing it for the people anyway. You're doing it as unto the Lord. But this this mindset of that fruitfulness in ministry is is gonna. It's, sometimes it's gonna be good, sometimes it's not. But you have to be constant. You have to be constant in your call and what you're supposed to do, and who you're supposed to reach. You know, and uh, just as a church, it's gonna be this way. You know, there are, there are times as a church, even even in the twelve years we've been doing it, where it's it's fluctuated. You know. And there may be times where people are just knocking the doors down and we're the, you know, we're this one life is the newest, greatest, latest church and we've got life groups and we've got this going and we've got life group kickoff party and we've got all these fun events and, you know, and people are just uh, coming in droves or maybe it's on Easter and the place is packed and it's standing room only or it's Christmas and then maybe it's in the summer and people are traveling and so it's, it's down. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're called to be constant. We're called to be stable. We're called to be, you know, serving the Lord, as the Bible says, in season and out of season. And, you know, we don't deal with this as much in America. But I remember when I was in China the last time, which was also the time that I decided I was never going back to China, by the way. But the last time I was in China, uh, the first time I was there... Um, the, the window and the door for ministry was very wide. It was very open. And, the, you know, we were working with World Compassion, and, man, we were preaching the gospel. You could tell that the underground church and the Chinese people, there was like a weight that had been lifted off of them because they were having more freedom, and they were able to do things they weren't doing, so when they couldn't do before. Well, when we went back two years later, that literally was in the process of changing while I was there. I was in China while some of these things were changing. They had a change in the leadership, and he brought the hammer down quick and immediately. And that was while we were there. And while we were there, there were like meetings being shut down, leaders we were supposed to meet with, churches we were supposed to go to, that they were like, nope, ain't happening, we're not doing it. And they were shutting things down while we were there. And we we started getting nervous. You know, it's kind of like... You watch the person who kind of knows the most, and it's like, all right, if he's not nervous, I'm not nervous, but if y'all starting to get nervous, now I'm starting to get nervous. And that was when I remember thinking to myself, you know, this isn't really my calling exactly. Like, I'm called to some people back home, and I need to make sure I get back to those people and not end up in some Chinese prison for the who knows how long. Um, But I saw this in China like they knew how to do this they knew how to operate under different circumstances. When the door was wide open and the, and the persecution was light, and then when the persecution hit, whoop, they knew right what to do, how to adjust, how they were going to handle it. They knew how to deal with this. And I think for America, this is very important. Because as I've seen the culture changing, the church has not adapted well right, as as the culture has become less tolerant of Christianity, less accepting, more hostile towards Christian beliefs on really fundamental things, marriage, gender, sexuality, you know, these types of things, as the church, as the culture has become hostile towards the church's beliefs on those things, well, I haven't seen, the in a lot of ways, I haven't seen the church remain constant and learn how to do ministry in both seasons. I've seen the church sort of shrink shrink in be quiet you know drop and and not really stay constant like we like we should and across the board church attendance is, is dropping by and large across america now not in every denomination and not in every church there are churches there are churches that are growing denominations that are growing but if you just take everything together church attendance is, is dropping well there there's a lot of reasons for that but my only point is this, to tell you tonight, okay? Because that's all we have control over is. Encourage yourself, decide who you're going to be and what you want to do as a servant of the Lord. And you got to understand everything else is going to go up and down. And you have to remain constant. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to do ministry in any circumstance. I'm ready to do church in any circumstance. If, if the culture accepts it, if they reject it. If the government is for us Or against... It 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 doesn't matter. I'm ready to do ministry in whatever... Because that's how Paul was. And so he went to places where he was accepted. He went to places where he wasn't. And he had the same strategy. He went to the synagogues. He preached to the Jews. If they didn't accept it, he went to the Gentiles. This was happening over and over and over again. And what I believe is pleasing to God is well-trained soldiers that are ready for whatever circumstance presents itself. And that's what I want us to be. Amen. 2 Timothy 4, 1. Actually, I want to read two passages out of 2 Timothy because Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. He was his number one disciple. And in this letter to him, this is what he says, 1 Timothy 4, uh, 2. He told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. What does he mean by that? I mean, now, Timothy was at Ephesus when this letter was being written. So Paul's going on from Ephesus. This is much later. Timothy is there pastoring the Ephesian church. And Paul writes this letter to Timothy. He says, Timothy, listen. I know sometimes it can be complicated, you think, to do the ministry, you know, and and get all this done and, and work in these difficult situations. But he said, this is the constant. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means be ready when the season is prosperous. Be ready when the season is fruitful. Be ready when people are receiving it and they want to hear it. Be ready when people are are hungry and they're they're beating the door down to hear the word. Be ready, then he says, out of season when nobody wants to hear what you gotta say. Be ready out of season when it's not popular. Be ready out of season when the culture is fighting it and they don't want any part of it. See, I've experienced both, and I know there's some of you that are older than me that you even more so. But just in my short time, I've seen the acceptance and then the rejection of the Word of God in our culture. So he tells Timothy, look, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season to what? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete Patience, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, the world is going to go crazy around you. And there's going to be people that have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, I don't know exactly what generation Paul had in mind when he said this. I mean, it could have been a, a, a time for Timothy. It could have been our generation. It could be something after us. But man, when you see today the things that are going on in our, in our nation and the things that are happening, not in the world, in the church, in the pulpits of the church, uh, I was going to tell you to google it, but i I'd be scared what you'd see but but yeah, Google it because in the pulpit there's transgender, there's drag queens there, the stuff that like I just read the art, I don't even open them anymore. I'm like, I can't read any more of this because I got to stay constant, I got to stay ready in season I season. I don't want anything just dragging you down. Because look, whether it's crazy, whether it's not, I'm staying constant. I'm staying constant. And this is what he was telling Timothy. He said, look, the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They don't want to just hear basic, good, solid, truthful Bible preaching. They want to hear other craziness. They want to hear, you know, crazy stuff that is anti-Bible, anti-Gospel. Because... They want to accumulate to themselves what they want to hear. They will have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Does anything fit that more than what we're what I've seen, what's, what's going on? And it's by no means the large majority of churches, but it's it's out there and it's happening and it's growing. Where even in the pulpit, you have people that are teaching and accumulating to themselves people that suit their own passions. Passions. Did you know that being a Christian is not about you or your own beliefs or your own passions? It's about aligning your beliefs with a set of beliefs that's already been established and are unchangeable. So, the call of Christians is to submit themselves to the Word of God. Not edit the Word of God. But to submit themselves and yield themselves to the Word of God. So, the reason this is hard for churches and pastors is because when you do that, the fruit may go up and down, right? You, you stay constant and you, you stay faithful to the Word of God. Well, there may be seasons where people love that and they, they praise that and they're excited about that. There may be seasons where people reject that and they don't want anything to do with that. And as a result, the, the numbers are lower and the crowd's lower and whatever. And what Paul's telling Timothy is don't worry about any of that. That's not for you to worry about. You have one thing to worry about. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Repro- reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. He said because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So you need to get in the habit of teaching it now. So that when people don't receive it, you're still just faithful. But look at, look at verse 5. As for you. He gives Timothy instruction. As for you. Be sober-minded, and we're going to love this phrase, endure suffering. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. He tells Timothy, get ready to endure suffering. And that's not a phrase that we want to hear or, or like to hear. But I can tell you this, any, any suffering that we endure as Americans on the account of the gospel, it's just, it's just that much compared to what they were going through. But he told Timothy that part of leadership in God's kingdom is is enduring a little bit of pain and a little bit of difficulty and a little bit of sacrifice for the gospel. Paul's mentality was so different than ours. He had no problem with having to endure a little bit of suffering in order to obey God's word. You know, we, we whine and complain about how hard things are. Paul said, endure it. Yeah, endure it. You're supposed to endure it. You're supposed to endure a little bit of suffering. Look, he told him this again in in, uh, chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2, 3. He said, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul, if you read all of his writings, Paul considered it our Christian duty to share in the sufferings of Christ. The way that he said it, in in one place i forget which epistle it was in he said i am filling up in my cup what what is lacking until i've reached the the measure of the suffering of christ in other words from and i don't i'm just paraphrasing i don't remember it word for word but what he was saying was jesus had a cup of suffering and i have a cup of suffering and i've i've been suffering a lot and i'm watching my cup of suffering fill up and then I look over at Jesus and I still know i still got some lacking. And he says, I'm continuing to fill up my cup until it matches Jesus. Now that was Paul's mentality. I've never met an American like that. Never met. We do everything we can to avoid suffering. And in many cases, rightfully so. I, look, I don't want to suffer just for suffering's sake. But when it comes to being faithful to Christ and faithful to His Word, that may cause a little bit of uh, suffering, or at the very least, a little bit of rejection, or a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of pain, a little bit of difficulty. I mean, it's a sacrifice to come to church. Period, isn't it? Sometimes, I mean, I mean, not when the preaching is this good, but I mean, just some other. If you go somewhere else, you know, it might be a sacrifice. <laughs> Y'all know I'm kidding. I just got to throw in some humor there, but. It is a sacrifice to come to church because most of us, we, we work till whatever, got to get the kids from school, they got homework. It's a sacrifice. But Paul would say, yeah, it is endure, endure suffering. Endure a little bit of suffering to be faithful to God and faithful to his word. And I think he would laugh even that we call it suffering, some of the things that we call suffering, but that's another thing. So first thing I wanted you to see as we look through this passage tonight, number one, fruitfulness in ministry is going to go up and down, but our faithfulness needs to remain the same. Our commitment needs to be unwavering. And number two, no matter what season you are in, okay, whether good or bad, there will always be significant and tremendous obstacles and challenges to overcome what God's called you to do. And you just need to get used to that. I mean, as Christians, we have to be ready for that, used to that. Serving God is not like being on a cruise ship. It's a challenge. There are obstacles. There's one thing after another. If you're going to have a good marriage, if you're going to have a good business, if you're going to raise godly kids, it's work. And you will endure suffering, and you will have to overcome challenges and obstacles. But you have to have this perspective that he was given Timothy, is look, just go ahead and prepare your mind now. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be difficulty. And The answer is not to always just remove yourself from those difficulties. The answer is sometimes to embrace them and go, this is just how it's going to be. This is going to be part of the Christian life. And I'm ready for it. And I'm okay with it. I mean, you don't know how many Christians I talk to that, like regularly, honestly, how many Christians I talk to that are upset by something in their life, something their sin has caused, something, something they've done, uh, you know, an addiction, uh, uh, some, anything in their life that's just hurting their marriage, hurting their relationship with God, and then you start te- telling them and laying out what you need to do to change it, and it's gonna, it just, it's a little bit of work, or it's a little bit harder than they thought it was going to be. Or it requires a little bit of change, or it requires a little bit of sacrifice, and all you can just see the look on their face start to change, like. What? Like, I thought you was going to pray over me, like lay hands on me, and it's going to magically disappear. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. It's going to take work, and it may be difficult, and it may require sacrifice, and you don't know how many people, seriously, will go just back into their pain and difficulty, not speaking anything that that's probably harder and more uncomfortable than what you were being asked to do. (laughs) But... It's painful both ways, right? So you can either be painful in your misery or you can have some pain and sacrifice and actually change your situation. But I encounter, I encounter it all the time, and, and we all do. We, we know what that's, what that's like. But what I'm, what I'm saying is we have to get used to this idea that for Christ and for the gospel, I'm going to regularly be laying things out. That's why I think children who serve God, who are raised in church raised, serving the Lord are, are some of the best Christians because they, they've just grown up used to it. Like I, I've told before how I grew up going to church every time the doors were open. So I never even considered not, it's not even a sacrifice to go to church because I've never not done it. And we, I've talked before about tithing, you know, you tithe 10% tithing. It was never a thing because from the time I was a kid, we, like, we'd get birthday money, and we had to give, you know, $2 or whatever off. So I never didn't tithe. That, like, there was never a point in my life where I had to go, okay, I'm going to have to do this, and it's a really big sacrifice. Like, it was, it was just always built in. And I think there's power in that to teach kids from the time they're young of, like, serving God's a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice to go to church. It is a sacrifice. To, it is a sacrifice to pray. It is a sacrifice to read your Bible. But you get a kid getting up in the mornings reading their Bible and praying when they're young they 'll do it for the rest of their life they 'll do it for the rest of their life because they'll build that habit in and it'll become part of their routine and part and then when they don't do it they 'll miss it but this is and some of us weren 't raised like that, but being a Christian is hard work and it requires sacrifice. But when I read these stories of Paul, I think, yeah, it is but <laughs> It's almost embarrassing sometimes the level of sacrifice and work that we have to do for the gospel compared to what compared to what Paul and these guys did. So in a lot of ways we're getting off easy.